Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that thinks Diego Simeone would be great on a night out. My name is Cameron McDonald, and I've spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. And what a week of football we have had. In the Premier League, we had a series of upsets in the top four race and a bit of a shake-up at the bottom half of the table as United lost to Everton, Arsenal lost to Brighton and West Ham lost to Brentford while Spurs scored four against Aston Villa. Shockingly, it turns out that signing players in January might actually be a smart move. Pretty wild one. We also had a blockbuster matchup between Man City and Liverpool, perhaps the game of the season, before we even look to Europe or look at um, what the uh, results at the bottom of the table mean for the relegation scrap. But in Europe, we had four unbelievable quarterfinal games. There's plenty to get into, so let's leap in with the top of the table clash, Man City versus Liverpool. Absolutely, Les, because what a what a great game this was for so many reasons. I mean, it was one of those Manchester City versus Liverpool and a lot of these big Premier League, uh, you know, title deciding big games in recent years have tended to sort of skew towards being a bit conservative, like a sort of a nil-nil or a one-one or something like that. Um, but this game was obviously had four goals. It could have had more. And it was just great in the sense that like I heard someone compare it to like that scene in uh, like Rocky 2 when Rocky is fighting Apollo Creed and like they get to that point in the fight where they're both really tired. Neither of them's like blocking anything. They're just having a slugfest and just swinging at each other. Um, and that's kind of what this game was like. It wasn't great defensively from either side. Both sides made a lot of errors. But moving forwards, they were both really, really potent. There was a lot of really interesting attacking talent on display. Um, and as a neutral, as sort of someone who doesn't particularly care that much which of these two sides wins the league or which side of these two wins a game it, it was really really entertaining yeah absolutely was I mean I think um it's as good as a draw could be in that setting right like thank god it wasn't a nil-nil that would have been horrible but personally obviously it would have been fun to have seen one of those teams win it just for what that would mean in terms of the shake-up for the title race but um can't be mad at how it all turned out and yeah really thrilling and 90 minutes of football yeah, well, I think it was, you know, City again. This will be something I'm sure we'll hear a lot of when they, you know, we'll talk about them playing against Atletico Madrid, which is a tie they ultimately won. But coming up against these big, big teams, even when Liverpool were by nowhere, you know, by no means at their best defensively, there were a couple of moments where Manchester City really could have scored. There was that Sterling chance and also the Morris chance. And you looked at those and you went, if they had, let's say, a Vlavic or an Mbappe or someone like that, that's a goal. Um, and And... You know, you do maybe that sort of like a little bit of a canary in the minds for what they'll be like in the Champions League final, especially if, as could very well be the case, they end up playing Liverpool in the Champions League final um, or a team that can defend very competently and, and put themselves together well. So, you know, another game where I think probably if you had to pick a side that looked better and should have won, it would have been Manchester City because, of course, they had that disallowed goal as well um, for, for correctly for offside. Um, but yeah, I think. Again, it's weird because they're such a good team. They're so successful. But again, you can sort of look at them and go, well, there's one big quote unquote problem that should be fixed and you would win even more games. It is a weird one, isn't it? I think, um, I mean, I keep yogoing around with how I feel about this uh, this pep side. Um, but, you know, you've got to admire what they're doing, especially without a striker. Um, but uh, yeah, you're right. It could be a canary in the mines. I mean, I think... It wouldn't be the first canary in down the mine. I think that the path is littered with them <laughs> um, as they uh, they make their way down. But um, you know, it's what they've chosen to do. They're obviously 
like pros to the system alongside the cons and you know that the pros were that they played a lot of really good fluid football as you said the attack was was definitely better than the defense for both sides but I agree with you that yeah City just had that little bit of an edge and in that sense maybe they'll be a little bit disappointed not to have have won the game so Liverpool probably got away with it there um they they just didn't look as as cutthroat as they have in in recent weeks I want to take the conversation in a slightly different direction, slightly away from the the game itself, I suppose, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because anyone who likes Premier League football will have watched this match. Uh, Secondly, just because as it was a draw, even though it was a thrilling draw, it hadn't actually done anything to the title race per se, except, I suppose, give Liverpool one less game to close the gap. Um... And thirdly, because it's a really interesting piece of discourse that has been happening sort of in the lead up to the game, during the game, and definitely after the game because of some of the stuff that happened. Um, And it's even more interesting having seen, for example, again, Manchester City and Atletico Madrid have a real sort of like fiery bust up on the pitch. It's a conversation about rivalry, and a lot of people have been engaging in this sort of back and forth conversation over the last week about whether or not you can call Manchester City and Liverpool rivals. Now, obviously in football, there are the sort of classic, uh, you know, old rivals, Liverpool and Manchester United, for example, uh, Arsenal and Chelsea or Arsenal and Tottenham, for example. And then every now and again, you get the rivals that are sort of spawned by not sort of geographic enmity, but like, you know, they're they're challenging for the title at the same time, like, for example, Arsenal and Manchester United in in the noughties. Um, and, And some would suggest I initially would have assumed just City fans but then some Liverpool fans namely Jamie Carragher was weirdly flying this flag uh, sort of flying the flag this is like one of the greatest rivalry rivalries in Premier League history and I think it's maybe you could make the case and I'm not flying this flag maybe you can make the case that these are the two best teams in Premier League history but is it a really good rivalry um and I think it's interesting because it's it's a a conversation that sort of feeds into a, a larger commentary on like the state of the game in that like Man City and Liverpool played together. The players were like all very friendly to each other after kickoff, after, sorry, um, full time. I think like Thiago and, oh, sorry, Kevin De Bruyne and Virgil van Dijk were like having a chat together and like apparently their kids go to what school about their together. Kids? Yeah. Yeah, they were having a natter, and like it's come out since that like apparently Fabinho, because um, obviously a lot of the Liverpool and Manchester City and United players live in, uh, they all live in Cheshire. A lot of them go around to Fabinho's house. The like Portuguese speaking players, including like Alisson, is around there all the time. Fred is around there all the time. And there's a certain kind of fan who I don't necessarily disagree with, but I don't 100 percent agree with, who is sort of like shaking his his or her fist at that, going like, "Oh, that's a load of nonsense! All these players being friends." And there's some people who are going, "Well, you know, it's just the nature of the beast." we are now in the more modern game a more professional game so players don't have to be you know complete enemies in real life to put it all in on the pitch either um i'm interested to hear your take on which side of the aisle you fall on well i think um the first thing i would say is that i don't think pep guardiola breeds teams that are fiery and aggressive and angry in the same way that roy Keane would would lead a dressing room that's just not or or, or ferguson would would lead his teams yeah. yeah exactly that's just not you know how Pep runs his his team, his squad. Um, so I, I feel like there's definitely an element of that, which is that you know I don't think Man City, despite their success in recent years, have the the fiery passion of you know the the teams of old. So that's that's before you even talk about kind of whether or not they should be I guess hostile to each other openly. But I, I do feel like 
it's a shame that they don't have that. They're almost a little bit too clinical. And Pep Guardiola's definitely come under fire for being too clinical at times. You know, people not playing in his system correctly. That famous example of Thierry Henry getting taken off despite scoring because he didn't do exactly what Pep wanted him to do. I do think it's a flaw of his and it's the reason why players like Ibrahimovic didn't get on well with him because, you know, he's just not, he's not all things to all people. Um, And... I think that probably contributes to the fact that there is a bit of a lack of of grit and and anger in this rivalry. I think it's definitely too early to call it one of the best rivalries in Premier League history. I think there need to be at least like I don't know three, four more seasons of of them kind of at each other's throats before we can compare them to the likes of of Liverpool and Man U or Arsenal and Man U or or even Chelsea and Tottenham. I think they've had a longer, fiercer rivalry for the last five, ten years than than Liverpool and City have had. Um, whether or not I think it's a bad thing, I, I do... There's a line to be had there, and, I, and I, I don't want players getting on before the game. I'm less concerned about them being pals afterwards. Obviously, I get that, you know, you do get a lot of foreign players in, in these squads and, and they want to feel at home and they want to get on with, with people from their home country so it would make sense that they would have pals outside of their club especially if they're relatively local I don't mind that too much but I I wouldn't yeah it doesn't sit right with me entirely I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle do you know what I mean yeah I agree I mean I had I was probably leaning more towards the sort of like Brexit dad thing where I was like oh these players being friends and such um, but then I read this one thing that made me sort of slightly slightly soften my view on it which was someone highlighted the point I mean you talked there about how and so in response to me mentioning Fabinho sort of these players from different you know countries coming to England wanting to hang out with, with their own it is also true of the English players and the point that someone made was they were like look back in the day when we had the golden generation all of the players in the England camp used to eat at tables like by team all the United players would eat together all the Liverpool players would eat together all the, the Arsenal players would eat together and they, despite being a very very talented squad they won nothing um whereas this you know England team although it hasn't yet won any of the high honours has been really really successful despite having on paper much less talented players probably partly because they all get on really well and if that if the if the price to pay for England winning the World Cup in a couple of months is you know Trent Alexander-Arnold not swinging for Phil Foden I'll kind of take that trade yeah, very fair. I mean, I think uh, there was a good interview with Frank Lampard where he was talking about how his relationship with, I think it was Rio Ferdinand broke down, how they used to be good mates, they used to message all the time. And then because of the the rivalry that they had at a club level, they just stopped talking. Um, and it, I definitely think that you're right, that it, it was a real reason why the golden generation never won anything. I mean, the thing I'm thinking of now is like, yes, let's keep that English uh English good vibes going. How do we break up the Brazil um, camp? How do we break up the French camp? <laughs> let off a let off a stink bomb in Fabinho's house where they're having like their their Brazil meetings or like start spreading rumours around the uh, the city camp if you're Phil Foden to like any of the players from teams that you think might threaten you in the World Cup. Exactly. You just go up to uh, like get Phil Foden sidling up to Gabriel Jesus and be like, "Hey man, Fabinho was talking shit about you." <laughs> Yeah, I don't think you heard that. Yeah, he said, said you're just like a shit lad. Yeah, that, 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 that <laughs> ultimate guerrilla warfare there. Hey, man, it, it's it's got to be done, I think. Um, I'll take whatever advantage I can get for the uh, um, the World Cup this year. It, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I feel like part of it is like you always kind of yearn for like what you don't 
or, or like what was in the past. Like I, I saw another person sort of commenting on like, I wonder if back in the day, if Twitter had existed, people would have been sort of like lamenting the rivalry between Arsenal and United as not being as good as the one between Liverpool and Forest in the 70s. I mean, I'm sure that absolutely was the case. I think the you know, the the grass is always greener in the past. Um, that's not the phrase. I'm sure there is a phrase similar. Um, you know, it, it's always going to be, it's always going to have that tint of, of history about it. And people are always going to think that people are always nostalgic, what came, yeah. yeah, what came before was, was better. Um, and, you know, that's obviously their, uh, their right to say that. Um, I, I do, I do miss some of the, some of the passion. I would like a little bit more of a, of a fiery exchange because I mean, you, you've, you've played football with me. I do quite like to, to be a little bit antagonistic at times, but I'm never not going to shake someone's hand at the end of the game. Um, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, you can, no, 100%. you can be, and, and you can be fiery. Go on. And, and those who don't are always the ones that you're like, come on, mate. But then, I, but then I would submit that although I would want that for you and for me and for everyone we play football with, we're not playing football at the elite, elite level. Um, and so like, uh, I, I don't know, we, we all kind of hold a bit of a candle for things like Pizzagate or like, you know, Vieira and Keane squaring up to each other or like how much like different players didn't get on in these sort of like massive blockbuster rivalries. And so like I get it and I get why it's it's probably for this in terms of this, the actual sport of football, probably a really good thing that these players get on. There is a part of me that's like, it would be nice if there was like just a little bit of bad blood between like even the managers, like Mourinho Wenger. Remember how great that narrative was for so many years between those two or, or Wenger um, Ferguson or, or, or Ferguson Mourinho. I mean, that was always, every time you, you stood up for that, it was going to be great. And then before this game, Guardiola said something like, oh yeah, the game's going to be great and the, the glass of wine I'm going to have with, with Klopp is going to be great afterwards. And I was like, eh. I I know what you mean. I don't. Uh, yeah, that doesn't sit. That doesn't. Yeah, I I I prefer the good old days as well. Bring. I'm putting on my Brexit dad cap as well. Um, <laughs> I I want I want passion and I want I want fallouts. Um, I don't want I don't want to hear about the glass of wine before the game at least. Yeah, absolutely. But by all means, I mean, like Ferguson used to quite famously have like a glass of wine with a lot of managers. Although he banned like Wenger from doing it with him, he like would always invite the other manager to have it with him, but not Wenger. Um, but like Ferguson would do that, but he would never in a million years pre-match be like, "Oh, the game of football is going to be great," and I'm like really looking forward to having a glass of wine with the opposition manager afterwards. It's just unthinkable. But uh, but look, maybe we're just nostalgic and thinking about you know what we know from our youths and what what we always remember growing up with. I guess. I mean, I I think we're we're in some sort of agreement here, and I think a lot of people will probably, well, if you don't agree with us, let us know. But I think a lot of people would um, agree that you do want you do want that that little extra bit of spice to a derby because that's what makes it fun. That's what makes it heated. That's what makes you know the bragging rights all that more um, enjoyable. Do you know what I mean? You you want yeah you want it you want it, and yeah. and City Liverpool are missing it. I think City yeah. are missing it in general. Yeah, well, I mean, I, that's that's another part of it, isn't it? I mean, I think the the counter argument to this is now Chelsea, um, but I think obviously when you're a team, especially like one of the big three in this country, like historically Arsenal, Liverpool, and Man United, you have every time you play each other, there's like two hundred instances of when you played each other in the past at the top level, and so there's like layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers, and layers of contempt, whereas like for for someone like Manchester City, like how many times have City been facing off against Liverpool for a title? Um, maybe sometime like way back in the day, that's like 
too prehistoric for me to know off the top of my head and please forgive me any you know <laughs> really big like <laughs> like sean goater and and colin ball fans that are that are going to be cussing me out in, in, in the comments but <laughs> you, mean, you know yeah i can't think of a time that that's been a big head-to-head rivalry in the past maybe um, like late whereas, 70s maybe but yeah no even then i don't think city were ever really challenging for, for the league but like you know someone like forest were, were there um but yeah, I, I think maybe maybe it will be the case in years to come. And, and also, it does make me think, actually, thinking about that. I wonder the first sort of year or two or three or whatever that that Chelsea started to do well was the popular conversation like, oh, Chelsea fans are trying to force a rivalry with United, but like United obviously don't care because who are Chelsea? They're the new kids on the block. Well, that's true, and I think it's good to it's good to recognise that. I don't know because I was, you know, a young lad, but I, I wonder if that was the popular conversation. No, I'm sure you're right, um, and I think it's good to recognise that. Like, I think we're witnessing maybe the formation of of a more of a bitter rivalry, but it's just not quite at the same level as a historic one because they haven't really had any of those like real spark moments that that, that you know create a rivalry like maybe the battle of the bridge chelsea tottenham um in recent memory where you know i think that really catapulted their rivalry from a bit grating to you know this is as serious if not more serious in chelsea fans minds for example as arsenal versus chelsea yeah, really, really getting better. Well, let's let's not spend too long talking about the top two teams because, as mentioned, you know they've not really shifted their position in the table relative to each other at all with this draw. Let's start speaking about some of the assorted top four games, starting off with Spurs, that team you just mentioned, who are continuing to go from strength to strength in their last two games. That's nine goals scored and zero conceded, which is uh, quite a good record, quite a good thing to be holding on to in in this sort of run to the end of the season, particularly uh, in focus are those two players they signed, uh, Rodrigo Bentancur and Dejan Kulisevsky. Kulisevsky has three goals and six assists uh, in nine Premier League starts for Spurs. And even when he isn't scoring or assisting, he's almost always involved to some degree in any goal they score, obviously when he's on the pitch. Um, he's on loan at the moment. I believe they have a, a loan to buy option. And he's he's only 21. Now, he could be doing what a lot of players tend to do at the back end of the season. It was only last season we saw you know, Joe Willock and Jesse Lingard both look like world beaters, and next season Kulisevsky might look bang average, like those two players have this season. But if Spurs have pulled off that signing and he looks even like half of this level over the course of a season, what an absolute cracker of a signing. Yeah, they've nailed it. I mean, I think uh, you've also got to give a massive amount of credit to to Antonio Conte because I just have so much faith in him as a manager to to mould any sort of signings that he gets into top class players. I mean, he made Marcus Alonso look world class for a little bit. He did, yeah, he did, yeah, with, with that system. That's, but a that's a frighteningly strong accolade for him to have had. <laughs> that, that is, I think he had a he managed a team and won the league with a team that had both Marcus Alonso and Willian, which is crazy. <laughs> Yeah, bizarre. Probably, you know, an underrated achievement um, in the uh, in Premier League canon. Um, but you know, Spurs have good players. Um, I think they just have been underperforming for a long time. Um, it's interesting to see to kind of. I remember about a year ago we talked about Deli Alley, and we talked about the fact that we both kind of semi agreed. Maybe I was pushing it more than you were. I'm not sure if you, I don't want to put words in your mouth. But we both kind of kind of spoke about the idea that. Anyone who was going to get the best out of Tottenham was going to have to get the best out of Deli Alley because he was so key to the dressing room. It felt as as well as their their collective team performance. He was such a big profile and he was so often out of sorts. Um, and it's interesting that kind of Conte came in, 
Dele Alli's gone almost as quick as possible. And then, you know, Spurs are suddenly playing a different brand of football. It feels like with that change, he's kind of shrugged off the, the demons of the past. Um, and that's not to criticise Dele Alli. That's just to say, you know, sometimes change is needed um, to yeah. shake things up and, and mix it. Um, and yeah, this, this Spurs side does seem like a new beast and, and a scary one, one that's going to be challenging for the top four. Absolutely. Well, well, so so one of my favourite stats uh, that I read this past week, and I think it's only now true because of the hat-trick he scored uh, over the weekend, is that Hyungmin Son is actually the top non-penalty goalscorer in the league this season. So Mohamed Salah is obviously the top goalscorer, but if you take away penalties, Hyungmin Son uh, obviously not usually taking them with Harry Kane being the preferred penalty taker, it's actually Hyungmin Son who has the most the most goals, which is quite an impressive accolade. And Hyungmin Son, I feel like he... I don't want to say flies under the radar because it's pretty apparent to everyone that he's a top, top player, but I, I feel like he sometimes doesn't get the props he deserves. I think partly because sometimes he does go a little bit missing when Harry Kane's not there. He has had you know occasions of doing both, both sort of absolutely carrying the team on his own and also sort of like you know failing to, to to carry the team on his own which i guess isn't the, you know a massive indictment of you as a player if you can't drag a team to success but i definitely think he's really stepped up this season and it's funny because you look at harry kane every time he does well and as a spurs fan i can only imagine that you're sort of like ah yes you know another hat trick for harry you know hurricane harry and blah, blah blah but there's a part of you that's like oh well that's one foot out the door or at least he's gonna be trying to leave in the summer Whereas him and Son signed that like like five year contract during the summer, like during the whole Kane saga, he was like, "I'm committing my future to the club." So you would have to imagine that Spurs fans don't really need to worry about him leaving, and he could be the the, the real cornerstone for them. He could well be, yeah. He did double down, and he also he he produced at the beginning of the season when Harry Kane wasn't even playing. Um, you know, I think he he starred in that uh, that win against City at the beginning of the season. Um, so. I agree. He is the cornerstone. I think um, he's got a lot of love from Spurs fans. Um, and it's funny, isn't it? Because I'm trying to think of um, good good players to compare him to. And I think maybe part of the problem is like some people at times think of him as less of a Sadio Mane and more of like a Hakim Ziyech. But he's definitely closer to, to Mane. Um, and he's... Yeah, well, I mean, he's got the goals to prove it this, this season, certainly. Yeah, well, he's been consistent, I think. Well, in terms of end-of-season output, even if he's inconsistent on a on a week-by-week basis and a month-by-month basis. Yes, but again, sometimes with Hume Son in seasons gone by, I, I would look at some of the goals he'd scored. And I can't remember who we were talking about last week about that. Kevin De Bruyne is who we were talking about. And I was saying he doesn't do this. And I think the big difference with Hume Son's goals this season, as compared to some of the goals I've seen him score in previous seasons, it's like he would pop up in a 5-0 and get two, but it'd be like, well, have those goals decided the match or have you just filled your boots? Whereas there are games like this one, for example, where he scored a hat-trick, but he's the he's the match winner with his goals rather than sort of chipping in with a couple of goals when the match is won or, or sort of as part of a match win, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure thing. Um, well, I mean, it's yeah, it's an exciting time to be a Spurs fan. It really seems like they've got something going with this uh, this this powerful midfield two pivot of Hoiberg and Bentanko, as you mentioned earlier. And yeah, um, you know, it'd be interesting to see how far they get. 
Maybe not so exciting for Aston Villa with four losses on the spin. A bit of a weird one. It definitely looked at first like Steven Gerrard was turning them around. He won his first two games and everyone was sort of going, oh, wow, you know, we weren't, we were worried for no reason. The, the sort of like switch from the Scottish Premier League to the regular, the English Premier League is like a completely one-to-one. Um, and then since then, they've been really, really shaky. Not in any danger at this point, obviously. They're completely safe from relegation, I think if not mathematically, as good as. Um, but I'll have some big questions to ask in the summer because they have not looked great um, after the first two games. Yeah, I mean, we, we I guess we kind of had the, the new manager bounce and then we also had the new player bounce with, with people like Felipe Coutinho. And I think some people thought, oh, we're going to see the, the Coutinho of old because he scored that brace in his first game or he got a golden assist or something like that. They weren't great goals, the ones he scored. They weren't the Coutinho of old bending it in from, from the edge of the box. And and he's looked really good a couple of times, but I think he's just not going to be what maybe was expected of him when he came in and immediately had that impact. And yeah, you know, Villa, Villa got rid of um, of Dean Smith for a reason. You know, they were struggling as a club. And there's only so much that, that a new manager can come in and do, especially when he's not massively experienced um, and with only one um, one window and in the middle of the season. So it doesn't surprise me. Um, I guess the, the only concerning thing would be whether or not they end on a really bad run of form and then carry that form over to next season. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely fair. I think you're right that it's it's too early to judge either way because he's inherited this team and et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I, I wouldn't be panicking if I was a Villa fan or sort of starting to ride out the P45 if I was on the Villa board. Uh, looking back at teams in positions of peril, um, <laughs> it's uh, Arsenal Football Club, who uh, were in recent weeks the sort of shoe-in fourth place team. Fourth was theirs to lose. I even heard some murmurs that uh, they might even challenge Chelsea. I think I even brought that up uh, when we talked about the fact that they had Chelsea to play uh, with a game in hand when they were sort of four points behind, I think it was. And, you know, some people even thought, oh, could they steal third? Uh, and of course, in true Arsenal fashion, they've imploded. Um, we went into their Crystal Palace performance last week, so no need to really go into that again. But they followed that up with another really bad performance against Brighton. I, I would say maybe unlucky to have the Martinelli goal ruled offside from all the angles. And the referee only looked at that one angle where you can't really see Kukurea. I think from the reverse angle, Kukurea is playing him on, but I guess it's tight. But even so, it's one of those situations where... You know, some Arsenal fans are going, well, if it's 1-1 at half time, maybe we go on to win it. I think if you keep making excuses for the poor performances, you keep getting poor performances. At a certain point, you can acknowledge that didn't go our way, dot, dot, dot. We still weren't good enough. It's tricky, isn't it? Because there's always going to be an element of luck in, in any football match. And, and generally speaking, the luck kind of balances itself out over the course of a season. But it can be really hard when when the luck doesn't fall your way when you're in a good run of form and then that can just shock you out of it and to play really well against Liverpool and to not have got anything from it I think will have thrown them and then they've not necessarily well they had, you're okay I can't say that they they played well against Aston Villa but they could have got points against Villa they could have got points here against Brighton um, oh, oh, and, and they sorry Palace um, and, and they just haven't so yeah it's uh it's a shame. I think that the flash in the pan has has subsided again, as it is wont to do with Arsenal. Um, I mean, they've still got exciting players, but they're young and they're just not going to be twenty goal a season players. They're not going to be, you know, get a get an eight out of ten in every match players. 
Yeah, and, and even if there are some players like that, I mean, I agree. I think the the vast majority of Arsenal's best players, or maybe even, well, not, it depends what you, whether you classify like a Tierney or a Gabriel or a Partey are sort of young, but I think the vast majority of the Sackers, the Odegaards, the Martinelli's are young and therefore somewhat inconsistent. Even if all of them do play an 8 out of 10 every game, you can't win the league with 11 players. Um, and I think... Again, Jamie Carragher said at the time, he was like, after the window closed and they signed no one, he was like, Arsenal have made a huge gamble here. They're going to need to be lucky for the next 17 games to finish fourth. Because I think when you look at their best 11 and some of the performances that they've pulled out this season, they probably are the fourth best you know, team in the league. But you don't just play it with your first 11. You've got a squad of 25, or you're supposed to anyway. I think Arsenal are now down to like 22. <laughs> and, and half of those are like youth players. And... You, you really can't be surprised. They keep sort of, you, you know, they, they lost that game against Crystal Palace because Nuno Tavares is not good enough to fill in for Kieran Tierney. They've then lost the game against Brighton because they've played Granit Xhaka at left back instead. And that means they've got no balance in the midfield. And poor old Sambi Lekonga, who's about four years old, has had to try and, you know, pin down Trossard <laughs> and Mwepu and been completely overrun. And it's just like, no one was saying necessarily that Arsenal should sign a left back in January. But if you don't sell, for example, Callum, or they didn't even sell Callum James, they terminated his contract, or you don't loan out Ainsley Bain and Niles, or one of those two can play right back, and you can put Cedric Suarez at left back to fill in with for, for Kieran Tierney, and then Jack can play in the midfield. And it's just, it, it, it's, I, I don't want to harp on about this too much because we've done it a million times already. But to to get rid of all those players and then not sign any replacements and then be surprised, it's like it's like turning up to a, to an exam without a pencil or, or a pen or anything and then being surprised when you get no marks. It's like, well, of course that was going to happen. You didn't prepare at all, like uh, appropriately. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, the the most egregious one in my mind, at least, um, which you didn't mention there, is that they let Bamian go for free. You, they you didn't get anything for him. Um, 10 goals and 11 starts so far. Um, 10 goals yeah, 11 starts for Barcelona. He's a really good player. Um, and yeah, it's it's not a very well-run club at the moment. Um, if I was to keep you to, I guess, a five to ten word answer, is this the end of Arsenal's top four chances? Uh, yes, it is for sure. <laughs> it's, it's my five. I would have just said yes, but you, you specifically asked for five to ten. So yes, it is for sure is my, is my answer. Good. Okay. Yep, I would agree. Uh, looking at our next uh, team for looking for top four that couldn't quite do it, Manchester United. I would need to review the tapes, but I'm pretty sure I called this. I'm pretty sure when we were talking about Everton a couple of weeks ago and we were looking at their run of games and we were sort of going through them live on air and we were like, hmm, okay, well, probably not going to get a result against Wolves. Difficult here, difficult there. We like went to United and I was like, you know what, Everton win that one. That's just that's just the nature of the beast. <laughs> Well, I'd happily go back and check. If you did, fair play, you were right. Um, yeah, there's always going to be one of those uh, in in the in the woodwork, and I guess maybe that is where someone like Frank Lampard does have experience, which is in a big game and having that mentality, understanding what it means to to really just get three points over the line in a one game scenario. He can play the big games. He knows how to do that. It's just you know whether or not you can maintain any sort of consistency, which he can't at the moment. I think Everton are, I mean, this week was very pivotal, obviously, for their survival. Not only did they win a very big game to get all three points, but also Burnley somehow conspired to lose to Norwich. Um, so it, it, it's such a big swing that it, obviously there's still quite a few games left, but Burnley have such a tough run and, and all that. I think maybe this weekend could have given Everton the safety they need. If, if they'd lost and Burnley had won, I, I, I would have sort of flipped my opinion entirely. But I think to get points here, 
it's firstly going to give a bit of confidence to a team because when you're in that massive downward spiral sometimes all you need is one result to just reverse things and give the players a bit of confidence and stop everyone being in the doldrums um whereas conversely for Burnley if you're losing to Norwich how can you have confidence you're going to beat most other teams yeah, it's very true. It's just a shame that Everton have a really tough run of games coming up that are going to be very hard to to maintain that form. They've got Leicester, Liverpool, um, Chelsea, and then Leicester again, which is just absolutely brutal. Yeah, definitely, definitely not a lot of fun for them. United, um, obviously very stinky in this game, not doing very well. A little bit of a boost for them uh, in that Eric Ten Hag was announced this week. Um, Every United fan who has never seen Ajax play once is really excited to see him. And the United fans that have seen Ajax play are even more excited. Um, I don't want to go into it too much because I think there is a potentially, you know, a full half or whole episode to talk about Ten Hag and United and where that's going to look very good and where it's going to look, you know, very bad. But to have that manager come in, in addition to their first window post-Ed Woodward coming up in the summer, it could be a really big boost for United. And I still think there's miles and miles and miles to go until they challenge the big boys. But you know they're going to have a lot of money. Ten Hag is going to be able to mould the squad the way he wants to straight away. So if I were a United fan, I wouldn't be feeling massively optimistic about this season. But there's something to look forward for next year, at least. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the the main thing for United is that they managed to at least get into European qualification. I think to to go without Europe would be really, really tough for them. Just in terms of recruiting players, um, you know, the, the man you name does not have quite the same sheen or pull as it did f- even five years ago, let alone 10, 15. Um, so they, they're going to really need to try and, and keep in contention for a, a European place, um, even if that is the Europa League. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was looking at the, the table... Is this crazy that you know there's only there's only nine points between tenth and seventeenth at this point in the in the season? Is that crazy? Yeah, yeah, it is absolutely crazy. Yes, yeah, very very compact this year. I mean, I think it really just speaks to the fact that all clubs are struggling, all clubs are having dips in form. Don't know why it is specifically for this season, um, but it really does feel like more than ever anyone can get a result against anyone, and I don't think Everton are anywhere near safe yet. Um, you know, I, I still uh, have have the confidence in Sean Dyche, despite the fact that he did uh, embarrass me against Norwich. <laughs> yeah, embarrassed me as well. I lost uh, not not through gambling per se, but through a, a game I play with some people I work with. I lost a lot of money on that result. <laughs> I didn't lose it, but but didn't win it. Is, is to be to be more uh, precise. Uh, let's go into a bit of useless trivia. I have got some interesting football history for you today about the shape of goalposts. Uh, goalposts for all of our lifetime, uh, unless you are playing at sort of a very old sort of rec ground, you might have seen these. Uh, but posts are round these days rather than back in the day a lot of posts were square Um, and this is because of Barcelona in the final of the European Cup what is now the Champions League in 1961 Barcelona played Benfica and hit the post five different times in that game the posts were edged after the game Barcelona coach Enrique Odiozola asked FIFA to make the posts round saying that it would make the game safer because as a, when a player hit the post it won't be as hard and they're less likely to get injured although a lot of people at the time commented that it was interesting he made that uh, he sort of asked that question after they hit the post so many times they made the change the same year Barcelona fans still know that game as the final del pal the final of the posts 
interestingly, one of the last uh, areas to change the sort of the post perfy for regulations uh, was some of the grounds in Scotland, most notably Hampden Park. And in 1976, Saint-Étienne played by Munich at the final of the European Cup that year. Uh, and Hampden Park still had those square goalposts. Saint-Étienne hit the bar in that game and the ball, ba- ball bounced down and out, but would have gone in if the crossbar was round. They went on to lose and Saint-Étienne fans have cursed Le Poteau Carré since... In 2013, in fact, Santetia and the club actually bought the offending goalposts and have put them in their club museum. <laughs> wow. There you go. I mean, I, I love how you've, you've inserted a little bit of uh, Saint-Étienne uh, propaganda there when he said, like, uh, undoubtedly confirmed with science it would have gone in if the, the crossbar was round. Um, but yeah, well, that's a cool piece of history. I didn't know it had that, uh, that much um, to it as a story. Yeah, yeah, definitely an interesting part of football history, why we round our posts these days, uh, supposedly to make the game safer. Um, but, I mean, also at the same time, is there much better than a goal that goes in off the post and or crossbar? No, so I, I'm just, all for round post supremacy. <laughs> well, exactly. Um, <laughs> or, or not. Uh, true enough. Uh, well, I've got a uh, got a handy little uh, piece of trivia for you that I think is also going to serve as quite a nice little transition into the European games that we're about to talk about. Um, a lot was made of the uh, the battles that uh, Stefan Savic had between Jack Grealish and indeed Phil Foden um, over the course of, of two legs of, uh, of um, football in the Champions League for Atletico Madrid versus Man City. Did you know that over, the, over those 180 minutes, he didn't concede a single foul? Yeah, yeah, I, I know. I saw that. That was like, did, but this is like one of those things. Whenever they look at the uh, the foul play charts and like who's got the most yellows, I'm always like, what is that? Re- what 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 is that a measure of? How like competent the referees are, <laughs> or how how sneaky and conniving the uh, the defenders are? Well, take take your pick. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, no, think, uh, yeah, I think I think you could probably make a case stuff. for for uh, for Pepe. You know should be sent off on in maybe about 75% of his games but he just uh as as they say is a master of the dark arts yeah absolutely uh let's move from that very cleanly nice little segue there into Atletico Madrid versus Manchester City um one where we were really hit with in both this game and in the Benfica Liverpool game with like the full bias of English commentary uh English commentators really clutching their pearls as Atletico Madrid dared to show a little bit of fire against Manchester City and you know kick them around and obviously not a fan at all of like people being violent and injuring players but like a little bit of metal and like sort of there was that point where, yeah, Savage like, grabbed Grealish's hair. He's not going to kill him. And all of the like pundits were going like, my stars! And I was like, come on, guys. Yeah, again, I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, City don't have that that fire in their bellies um, because as soon as someone brings the fight to them, they go, but my, but my good clean linen. Yeah, ex- yeah exactly. It's just, <laughs> heavens to Betsy, I can't believe it. And I was like, well, oh, come on, guys. But um, no, I, I did think... You know, Atletico Madrid, I have had soft spots for them in the past because of sort of the whole sort of being a plucky team in La Liga and, you know, occasionally vanquishing Real Madrid and Barcelona. It's always interesting when it's it's a sort of someone breaking up the monopoly or, or duopoly, I suppose, in that case. Um, but in this game, I mean, all of the players and Diego Simeone, who's a manager I really respect, were like kicking off at the end of the game. And I was like, you couldn't score a goal in 180 minutes of football. You only had two shots on target across the entire tie. 
you can't really complain that you haven't won here because you've you haven't tried to win you've tried to not lose and done very well you've defended fantastically but when you've got two banks of five for like 160 of the 180 minute tie you can't then be like we didn't win this is outrageous yeah i mean i think um I th- to be honest, I think it's maybe just a bit of a bit of a backlash from what I assume Diego Simeone did before the game, which is try and whip up his players as much as he could into you know a really um, aggressive mindset to try and and win the physical battle, which you can do against City, um, and and which they did to an extent. They just weren't able to score, as you say. So I, I feel like he you know got them all riled up, and then the fact that they lost then meant that they had all this pent up frustration and anger that they just took out in a bad way um and it was in a in a bad way mostly i uh, i chuckled um at the uh i went back again to watch the the highlights um before we did this uh this episode and i saw the top comment and the atletico madrid um highlights was uh when commenters when commentators say this is what we don't want to see they aren't talking for me i love a bit of handbags and this <laughs> I mean, again, part of me, part of me, kind of likes it. Part of me feels like this is, you know, what would happen if Sean Dyche got given us top six side, and and I love it. I absolutely love it. Absolutely, uh, Chelsea whipping out their customary late season charge. A couple of weeks ago, we were questioning whether things were all sort of crumbling to bits ever since you know the whole Roman Ravage sanctions issue. They beat Southampton obviously six nil over the weekend, um, and then played out of their minds against Real Madrid here uh, until unfortunately a couple of small mistakes um, meant that Benzema had his way. At the moment, you cannot afford to show an ounce of weakness against against Benzema because he's he's just been that lethal one of the things I wanted to ask you about because I was watching this game in tandem with uh, Viral Bayern Munich flicking back and forth it, p- people the next day and I've never really seen this to the same extent could not agree whether Reese James had had a fantastic game or a terrible game like people were it was like equally split right down the middle of people saying like he had a disaster class and people being like one of the best defenders you'll ever see like what a, what an absolute chad and I was like which was it <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 interesting one, isn't it? I think um maybe what Reese James does do really well is I think he's a really good loud player. And and by that I don't mean that he shouts a lot. I just mean that he does the big things well. You know, he he can break up play with a big challenge. He can put in a really exciting ball into the box. And that creates excitement, you know, more than it should comparative to the impact that it has on the game. And I think he's still got a little bit to learn um when it comes to you know that the the quieter side of things, just having really really good positioning at all times. You know, often that goes amiss because they're just there, so they they don't get praised for breaking up attacks. Whereas you know you're always going to get um, you know cheered for if you if you sprint back from out of position to put in a last ditch challenge versus just being in the right place to to like head it away from the back post. Um, so I, I think there's an element of that. I would say though, I do think Reese James is a very good player, and you know a lot was made of the fact that Kareem Benzema went straight up to him after the final whistle to swap to ask to swap shirts with him, and and that to me, you know, is it's hard to look past, right? Benzema, one of the best players in the world at the top of his game, like immediately going up to a young English lad and asking for his shirt. I like that. 
Yeah, it was very nice, and a lot of people were referencing that. And I, I'm I'm 100 sure this is not the way that Karen Benzema's mind works because he's not a complete psychopath. I conversely am. If I was a professional footballer, I would always, if my team had just roasted someone else, ask for the like shirt of the player who I just cooked, so I could like hang it up in my <laughs> in my like personal room. And be like, <laughs> God, I remember when I steamed that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's just like a, you could just take a walk down ego lane like all of the all of the all of like the fullbacks that you just like punished yeah absolutely i'd be like oh i absolutely steamed that guy oh i remember when he like lost a bit of focus and i just went in behind i'd always go up to that player and be like hey great game man fantastic can i have your uh your shirt it'd just be a rogues gallery of all the defenders i'd bested also just a nice little bit of shithousery at the end of the game be like oh mate well played hey 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 well played man let's swap shirts hey you did yeah, great hey ab- hey maybe next time pal maybe next time ab- you didn't get it this time maybe next time absolutely uh next before we finish where we started Unai Emery's Villarreal knocking out by Munich in the most shocking result of the round I-, I think even after the 1-0 me and all the people I was watching this with and everyone else I imagine kind of expected Bayern to like after the 1-0 finished rock up at the Allianz and be like, okay, cool, like, you've poked the bear, the giant's awake, you're going to get smashed 17-0. And Bavira just played out of their minds. Yeah, no, they did. Um, and all credit to them, all credit to the manager. Unai Emery knows how to win a European fixture. And it's a shame Bayern weren't really at the races um, in, in the way that you would expect of them. Credit to Villarreal, they did defend really well, but... You just expect to have a little bit more bite to a to a Bayern Munich attack, um, especially you know given the the players that we've seen line up for them in recent years, and they've got players like Kingsley Coman who who just can create something out of anything, and probably tied with Benzema as the most lethal striker at the moment in um, Robert Lewandowski, and he did score today. But um, yeah, it's a it's a shame. Probably speaks in part to the fact that Bayern don't get a lot of competition at the moment from their. Uh, from their domestic league and maybe maybe weren't quite as as uh, as ready mentally for for a battle in the way that Villarreal were. Yeah, absolutely. Um but definitely an interesting one. It's gonna be interesting to see this sort of like semi finals now of like Real, Man City, Liverpool and Villarreal. So one of these things is not quite like all the others um but hey you know you you never know in football um last let's finish where we started with liverpool fc progressing past benfica despite a very spirited performance from the eagles a lot of really interesting things uh here um adele tarapt in this new role as a cdm i mean he's new relative to when he was playing in the premier league he's been playing there um I believe, for two or three seasons now. But such an interesting player to completely invert everything your game is about from being sort of like a very tricky attacking midfielder slash winger to being someone who's like much more of a shuttler and a ball winner and someone who controls the, the middle of the park. Um, you really don't see that that exact switch very often. Um, so, so it's very interesting to see it from him specifically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, only real player I could think of in recent memory, someone like Rude Hullet. Um but yeah, he he has done it, and um, he's been doing it for for at least a season now. I think he popped up back on my radar maybe like a year ago, and I saw something about him being a CDM and doing really well in Portuguese league. And I thought, hang on a minute, what? Um, but yeah, he he has transformed his game. He seems to have turned his life around a little bit. Um, the 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 impression of him when he was in the Premier League was that he was a little bit of a Hatem Ben Arthur. Um, you know, someone that was very talented, Mario Balotelli, um, very talented, but didn't quite have the right mentality to to you know become an elite player. Um, but he's found his 
He's found his place in the world um, and good on him. He played very well. Unfortunately, not enough to keep Benfica in it. Um, you know, they should be proud of their performance. They just left themselves probably too much to do against someone like Liverpool. Yeah, lots to be very proud of. Darwin Nunes, of course. I mean, you know, it's hardly a hot take to say that he's very exciting, but he had another fantastic game. Uh, one player who had a real shocker for them, and there's two reasons that I was sort of annoyed about this. The, the, so the goalkeeper, Odysseus Vladikimos, or, or sorry, Vlakadimos, uh, Odysseus Vlakadimos, uh, had a, a real, real shocker, I thought. Two massive spells for Liverpool goals where I was kind of just like, oh, that must be just like heartbreaking for the attacking players who've worked really hard. And just like, if you're Darwin Nunez or, or um, you know, any any of the other players going forwards, like, who's who scored the other goal? Goncalo Ramos. Goncalo um, Ramos. It, it must be so annoying to sort of have that undone by like really, really easy mistakes. So I was kind of frustrated for them. I was also really frustrated because after he made the second mistake, he his name is Odysseus um, Vlacodemos and he has just like Odysseus on, on the uh, back of his shirt. And I was in the pub watching this with a bunch of mates, and I, I, I quipped, "Oh, Odysseus, all at sea there!" After the second one, and <laughs> no one, no one laughed. Everyone just groaned, and I was like, "That's that's really good." And fuck you for not thinking that's good. <laughs> oh dear, yeah, I missed that one. I actually, uh, do you know what? I, I was in in my own, um, you know, little world, hoping that Everton would score against Liverpool on the wing for Benfica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, another one that would have just been pure narrative. Um, but yeah, no, really exciting semis as a result of all these games. As we mentioned, Liverpool will be the ones taking on Villarreal and Manchester City taking on Real Madrid. We've come full circle. Is this becoming a rivalry? Are Liverpool and Man City going to take each other on the Champions League final? They play each other in the FA Cup semi-final in in a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, these teams they're competing for honours on all fronts. Is it going to become a, a massive rivalry that's worthy of being called one of the best? For me, not yet, but they've got some big games potentially in the future, so we will see. And it is those big games in which they are forged. That is probably a good place to wrap it up for this week, though. Rupert, uh, great to talk to you. Cam, thank you very much, and thank you to everyone for listening. We will catch you next time. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshel.